The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way through passage by passage through the book of Acts, and today the next passage we come to is Acts 19, 1 through 20. It says, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all, and he entered the synagogue for three months, spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking the evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greek. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they, continued, or they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Thank you, Kyle. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you uh, for the gift of your word. And we pray what Jesus prayed in John 17, 17, Lord, that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Uh, We understand from this that your word isn't just true, but the very standard of truth itself. So, Father, please use your word by your spirit to sanctify your people, today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I imagine that before most of us left our homes this morning, we probably took at least a quick glance in the mirror. 
right? Uh, there are some, of course, who may have spent a more prolonged period of time in front of the mirror. I understand there are those who feel the need to do that. But whenever we look at ourselves in a mirror, we're counting on that mirror to reflect to us what we truly look like, right? Uh, like if I invented some sort of a high-tech mirror that didn't show us what we actually looked like, but only what we wanted to look like, I mean, that wouldn't be very helpful at all. I mean, I could probably sell a lot of them, actually, but that wouldn't actually help people because we need to know when we look in a mirror if there's any issues in our appearance that need addressing so that we can address those issues before going out in public. We count on mirrors to do that for us. And my hope this morning is that our main passage here in Acts 19 will be able to function in a similar way and help us see ourselves spiritually as we really are. And ultimately, I hope it can help us answer what is the most important question that we could ever ask about ourselves, a question far more important than anything related to our physical appearance. That question is, where do I stand with God? Where do I stand with God? What's the state of my relationship to him? No other question even comes close to being as important as that question. Like if there were ever a question that, that we should want to answer correctly, that'd be the one. <laughs> because of course that question is one that has implications for eternity. And I believe our examination of Acts 19, 1 through 20 this morning will help us and, and prove very fruitful, I, I pray, as we seek to determine where we stand with God. Now, to remind you of some of the background here, the Apostle Paul is now on his third missionary journey and is headed toward the city of Ephesus. We then read this in verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Now, the word disciples there is a very general term that simply refers to followers. Uh, typically, we use the term to refer to disciples of Jesus. But as we're about to see in the subsequent verses, I believe it's best to understand it in this context as disciples of John the Baptist. Because look at verses 2 and 3. And he, Paul, said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. So apparently these disciples had received the baptism of John the Baptist, which was simply preparatory for the coming of Jesus, but had then perhaps left the area or something similar to that before Jesus began his ministry. So as a result, they didn't understand many of the key aspects of the gospel, such as the death of Jesus or the resurrection of Jesus, or as we see here, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So these guys are somewhat similar to Apollos that we encountered back in the previous chapter. They were Old Testament followers of God, Old Testament saints, if you will, who were still waiting for the Messiah to come. We then read this in verses 4 through 7. 
And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So Paul's able to tell these men about Jesus. Uh, The material we find in these verses, specifically in verse 4, is undoubtedly a summary of what Paul said. I'm sure Paul explained to them at least something about the significance of Jesus' teachings and, and his ministry and why they needed to believe in him and be baptized in his name. Uh, by the way, one interesting feature of these verses is that the Holy Spirit doesn't come upon these new converts until Paul lays his hands on them and prays over them. That's not typical. Usually, uh, people receive the Holy Spirit at the moment of their conversion, as seems to be implied in passages like 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and Ephesians 1, 13. However, here in Acts 19, as well as in several other places in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit isn't given until shortly after they embrace the gospel. And the reason for that always seems to be related to, number one, the need for clarity about certain groups of people being included in the Christian community, as well as, number two, the need for clarity about the authority of the apostles. So, for example, here in Acts 19, the Spirit was given through Paul in order to make it clear that these men were under Paul's authority as an apostle of Jesus, rather than them being under the authority of John the Baptist, let's say. They were therefore to follow the teachings of Paul and the other apostles, since that's who Jesus appointed as his authoritative representatives here on earth. So essentially, these new converts were to now live as disciples of Jesus rather than disciples of John. Their reception of the Holy Spirit is then confirmed in this particular instance by the Spirit enabling them to speak in other languages and also to prophesy. And even though there's a lot that occurs here in Acts 19 that many of us may have difficulty relating to, I do believe there's a very important point of connection that we don't want to miss. Like these disciples of John the Baptist here in Acts 19, there are many people today who have had religious involvement and a religious experience that falls short of genuine conversion. That is being genuinely born again and saved from their sins and brought into a right relationship with God. And the reason I know that is because for a while, that was me. I grew up in a Christian home and was involved in church, you know, pretty much from birth. And at age nine, I remember going to a a very large evangelistic event with a very dynamic speaker who spoke very vividly of the terrors of hell and the blessings of heaven. And 
for me, uh, heaven sounded like a lot better place to go. So when the speaker invited us to come forward at the end of the service and, and gather around the stage and repeat the words to a prayer after him, uh, I took him up on his offer. Like, I went forward. There was a pretty significant crowd of us that were had come forward and responded to that invitation. And so he just led us in the words to a prayer. And, and so I did that. And then after that, he invited all of us who had come forward to be paired up with a counselor to talk about the decision we'd made. But I didn't really feel like doing that, so I just returned to my seat. And for a while after that, I was convinced that I was good to go. You know, I had done that, made sure I was going to heaven, and I was a Christian now, or so I thought. Uh, the problem was that my life wasn't really any different. There was virtually no change in my attitudes or priorities or desires. I was pretty much the same person. And so now looking back on that, I don't believe that what happened to me at that evangelistic event was genuine conversion, right? It's not that I was insincere in, in coming forward, but there was something that I wasn't getting, something about the gospel or something the way, about the way I needed to respond to the gospel and repentance and faith that just, for whatever reason, didn't click that day with me. And so, like these disciples of John here in Acts 19, I was very involved religiously, and had a very memorable religious experience, but I wasn't truly a Christian. So if you're here this morning and aren't sure about where you stand with God, let me encourage you, first of all, to make sure you're clear about the gospel itself. Make sure you understand that our sins separate us from a holy God and make us deserving of God's judgment. Also, make sure you're clear about who Jesus is, that, that he is and has always been fully God, but that he entered this world as a real human being in order to rescue us from our sins. And the way Jesus accomplished that rescue was by living a perfectly sinless life in our place and then dying on the cross to pay for all of the sins that we had committed. All of the judgment from God that should have come down on you and me came down not on us, but on Jesus instead. He stood in our place. He took the wrath of God. And three days later, Jesus resurrected from the dead in order to show that the Father had indeed accepted his sacrifice. And with the result that we can be rescued from our sin and enter into a relationship with God and enjoy life eternally with him in heaven. However, the Bible teaches that in order for us to experience these blessings, we have to respond to this gospel message in the appropriate way. If we look at verse four, we can see the way Paul describes. He says that people have to believe in Jesus. And that word believe refers not just to intellectually assenting to certain truths about Jesus. 
It's deeper than that. Truly believing in Jesus, in the way the Bible uses that word, involves wholeheartedly trusting Jesus and putting our confidence in Jesus alone as our only hope of rescue. Think of it like the kind of trust that a skydiver puts in his parachute, right? The skydiver isn't just intellectually assenting to the idea that the parachute can ensure a safe landing. No, he's actively entrusting himself to that parachute. That's the sense in which we have to believe in Jesus. And that's the only way anyone can ever be saved of their sin and made right with God. So make sure you're clear about that. And understand that so many of the things that people often look to and trust in for assurance of their salvation simply aren't enough. Let me give you several examples. First, it's not enough to simply have an emotional experience. Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us that our hearts are deceitful. That means they can play tricks on us and lead us to believe things that simply aren't true. And so you may have had an emotional experience that was very powerful and that perhaps even moved you to tears. But that doesn't mean that you're genuinely converted. In addition, secondly, not only is it not enough to have an emotional experience, it's also not enough to have an intellectual understanding of the gospel. After all, James 2 tells us that even demons believe in Jesus in the sense of having an intellectual understanding of gospel truths, yet that's not enough to save them, nor is it enough to save you. It doesn't matter if you can articulate the gospel better than the Apostle Paul himself. If you're not trusting Jesus, then you're not saved. Third, it's also not enough to try to be a good person. If it were enough for us to simply be good people, according to our own standards of goodness at least, and live morally upright lives, then Jesus would have never had to come and die on the cross. The whole point of him coming, the whole point of the gospel is that we're not good people and can't ever be good people apart from the redeeming work of Jesus on the cross and the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. In fact, trying to be a good person apart from Jesus is actually offensive to God because we're rejecting the way he's provided to be right with him. Fourth, it's not enough to be raised in a Christian home. Christianity isn't some sort of genetic trait like eye color or something like that that you can inherit from your parents. Neither is it some sort of privilege or status that you can inherit from them, like American citizenship or something like that. Now, Christianity is it's a lot different. Every individual is personally responsible 
for putting their faith in Jesus. Nobody else can do it for you or give it to you. Fifth, it's not enough to undergo some sort of religious ritual. Uh, For example, baptism is a wonderful step of obedience, but it can't save you. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We're saved, dear friends, not through baptism or any other work or ritual, but only through faith in Jesus. Paul also makes this clear in his letter to the Galatians as he's addressing the error some of them had fallen into of trusting in the religious ritual of circumcision in order to be saved. In Galatians 1, 6 and 7, he tells them, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. So trusting in any religious ritual, whether it be circumcision or baptism or anything else, is a blatant departure from the gospel. And then lastly, it's not enough to be involved in a church. You can attend church every Sunday and even be giving money to the church and volunteering in the church and still not be genuinely converted. If there's any passage that should uh, motivate churchgoers to carefully consider their spiritual condition, it's Matthew 7, 21 through 24. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So you can have the most impressive spiritual resume filled with all kinds of religious involvement and even ministry and yet not be a true Christian. So these six things are all examples of having a religious experience or some type of religious involvement that falls short of genuine conversion. In a manner, not altogether different from these disciples of John the Baptist that we encounter here in Acts, back in our main passage of Acts 19. So please, if you hear one thing I say this morning, hear this. Don't make the mistake trusting in any of these six things as the basis of your assurance for salvation. Make sure that you are trusting only in Christ. That 100% of your confidence is directed toward him. And as we continue to walk through our main passage, we come to a deeper understanding of what it means to put our faith in Jesus. Remember, back in verse 4, Paul stated that it's necessary to believe in Jesus in order to be saved. And now in the subsequent verses, we see confirmation that this belief, Paul mentions, 
is the kind of belief that involves a change in our lives. We're called to believe in a life-changing way. And before we see what that belief looks like, we first find an account of what the belief doesn't look like. Verses 11 through 17. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. Well, who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So needless to say, I think if there had been like Twitter or TikTok back then, that probably would have been the viral video of the year, right? I mean, this, this is wild stuff here. Um, by the way, anyone who says that the Bible's boring clearly has not read the Bible, right? If, if anyone ever implies that the Bible's boring, I just want to ask them, like, have you ever read this book? But uh, wild stuff. Now, these sons of Sceva, as they were apparently calling themselves, were basically charlatans who were willing to try just about anything in order to make a name for themselves and get rich and you know, have private jets and book deals and things like that. And by the way, scholars tell us that as, as best as, as we're able to confirm, there was never any Jewish high priest that went by the name Sceva. So either this guy Sceva was real, but not actually a high priest, or uh, he was totally made up by these guys in an effort to impress people. Uh, sort of like someone today might falsely claim to have a doctorate or to be some sort of credentialed professional or something like that. And not only were these so-called sons of Sceva being deceptive about their spiritual pedigree, they were also being quite presumptuous. And as we see, that did not go very well for them. Yet the primary point of connection that I'd like us to be aware of between these guys and many people today is that they viewed Jesus not as a savior that they needed to trust, or as a master that they needed to follow, but rather as a tool that they could use for their own purposes. They had an agenda for their lives. Of course, that centered around them and were only interested in Jesus to the degree that they thought he could help them accomplish that agenda. For them, Jesus was useful. He was useful. And there are many today who, regrettably, have that same mentality. They basically view Jesus as a supplement that they take in order to make their lives better. And maybe they want to succeed in a certain business venture or career aspiration. 
and believe Jesus will help them be successful and accomplish their dreams. Or maybe they desire to break free from a certain addiction or habit that they've got caught up in, or be healed of a certain health ailment that they're battling, or be delivered from some other kind of issue that's been difficult for them. And they believe Jesus will give them that freedom or deliverance or healing. So basically, Jesus becomes for them nothing more than a convenient means to a desired end. He's desirable only to the degree that he's useful for helping them achieve their dreams, escape their trials, and accomplish their agenda. It kind of reminds me of a a not-so-sincere friend uh, that I had. I think it was back in the eighth grade, I believe. Um, This was a a guy who was uh, pretty popular. He was on the football team, things like that. And uh, well, I, I guess we could just say, was, uh, was more inclined to hang out with those who were, you know, into academics. <laughs> and so, you know, him and I had homeroom together, so we saw each other at the beginning of each school day. And uh, this guy was very, very nice to me, always treated me very well, and uh, tried very hard to, I guess, help me feel like I was one of his friends, at least when his real friends weren't around. And the reason he would do this is because he liked to copy my Spanish homework, right? So we had to, you know, do a workbook page every day. And so I would always come in with, you know, my workbook page all done and his wouldn't be done. And so he liked to copy my answers. And I'm not really sure what I was thinking, but unfortunately, I, I pretty much just rolled my eyes and kind of let him do what he wanted, right? And yet I understood, even though that was not a wise decision. I still understood that this guy's not really my friend. He's just using me to get his homework done. He was only my friend because, or only treating me as his friend, rather, because he thought I was useful. And you know, I wonder how often people look to Jesus with that same mentality, loyal to him and following him, only to the extent that they believe he'll help them achieve their dreams, escape their trials, and accomplish their agenda. So what's the solution? What's the alternative? Two words. Genuine repentance. A repentance where we transition from a self-centered life to a God-centered life. And that's what we see demonstrated in the final verses of this passage, verses 18 through 20. It says, Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail Mightily. Now, don't worry, we don't currently have any book burning events on our church calendar, this year at least. But uh, what we see happening here in these verses is nevertheless pretty notable. In fact, it's extraordinary. The text says that the total value of the magic books that these people burned was 50,000 pieces of silver. Uh, commentators estimate that that's approximately six million dollars in today's currency. 
Six million dollars. So understand that these books of the magic arts, it's not like a teenager just burning all their rock CDs, right? These books were incredibly valuable and were probably the treasured possessions of these people, and, and in many cases, a key part of their livelihood. Many of them probably earned a living through the practice of magic, and by giving up these books, were giving up their career. And their willingness to do that shows that their hearts had been changed in a fundamental way. Instead of treasuring these books of magical incantations, they now treasure Jesus. And that's a wonderful picture of what repentance is. Exchanging one treasure for another. It's turning away from the sins we once treasured and instead pursuing Jesus as our treasure. Anything less than that isn't true repentance. You see, contrary to what's sometimes assumed, repentance isn't merely admitting our sin. You can admit your sin without being truly repentant. Uh, I'm sure uh, there are instances in which uh, those of us who are parents have forced our children, especially at a, a younger age, to apologize. Right? Maybe they hit their brother or sister, and, and uh, you make them say they're sorry. And so what do they do? <sighs> sorry. <laughs> right? I mean, are we, are we the only ones? Okay. <laughs> Didn't think so. So clearly it's possible to admit your sin without truly repenting of it. However, in addition to that, we could even go further and, and say that it's also possible even to feel genuine sorrow for your sin and still not repent. You can have remorse without repentance. Those two things are not synonymous with each other. True repentance involves actually turning away from your sin. Or, as we've said even more descriptively, exchanging one treasure for another. Instead of pursuing sin as your treasure, you do a full 180-degree turnaround and begin to pursue Jesus as your treasure. Your heart is where the psalmist was in Psalm 73, 25 and 26, where he wrote with reference to God, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Your desire also matches the psalmist in Psalm 42, 1. As a deer pants for streams of water, so pants my soul for you, O God. That's what biblical repentance looks like. Casting away our sinful treasures, as we see in Acts 19, and embracing God as our true treasure and as the treasure that encompasses all others. If you'll do that, dear friend, Jesus will save you. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. 
You could have sinned in even worse ways than these pagans of Ephesus who were steeped in the occult. It doesn't matter if you will trust Jesus as your Savior and embrace him as your treasure. He'll save you. And that's the main thing we glean from this passage. Now, typically, I'll state the main idea toward the beginning of a message, but this morning I've saved it for the end. Jesus offers salvation to all who will trust him as their Savior and embrace him as their treasure. Again, Jesus offers salvation to all who trust him as their Savior and embrace him as your treasure. So have you done that yet? First, have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior or are you trusting something else? A religious ritual, perhaps, or perhaps your own attempts at being a good person or your involvement in church. Is your confidence truly in Christ and Christ alone as your only the one who can do for you what you could never do for yourself. Can you say in your heart the words of that old hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And not only that, but are you also embracing Jesus as your treasure? Do you still delight in sin as the overall pattern of your life? Or have you been changed in a fundamental way so that you now delight in Jesus? Is your life different than what it once was? So that even though you may not be perfect, you're nevertheless a changed person with a new heart, new desires, new priorities, new affections, and a totally new agenda for your life. Have you exchanged the treasures and pleasures of sin for the infinitely greater treasures and pleasures of God? And hopefully all these questions will help you answer the most important question any of us could ever ask, which is how or where do I stand with God? What is the state of my relationship to him? My prayer is that not one person would leave this room today without the confidence that they are right with God and ready for eternity.